The symposium of the preceding evening had been a little too much for my nerves. I had a wretched headache and was desperately drowsy. Instead of going out, therefore, to spend the evening as I had proposed, it occurred to me that I could not do a wiser thing than just eat a mouthful of supper and go immediately to bed. A light supper, of course. I am exceedingly fond of Welsh rabbit. More than a pound at once, however, may not at all times be advisable. Still, there can be no material objection to two, and really between two and three there is merely a single unit of difference. I ventured perhaps upon four. My wife will have it five, but clearly she has confounded two very distinct affairs. The abstract number five I am willing to admit, but concretely it has reference to bottles of brown stout, without which in the way of condiment Welsh rabbit is to be eschewed. That was the rather amusing opening of Edgar Allan Poe's Some Words with a Mummy. And you're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You're at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And today's fine, fine episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Squarespace.com. an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. You know, Chris, I've worked in online a long time now. So have you. Yeah. Lots of time for me to have become an expert at building sites, one would think. Yeah. Somehow I can sit down, I can throw my full focus into Lair of the White Worm or Dream Quest of Unknown. <laughs> when somebody starts explaining the technical side of site building, I just, my eyes roll back in my head. I don't know. I can't follow it. I get it. But that's why Squarespace is amazing because it is simple. They have beautiful templates for you to start with mm-hmm. and the design is just inherently good. So any content that you need, you just drag it in. I can do that because I learned with one of those toys that you get when you're little where you put the different shaped blocks into the empty spaces. I still retained that knowledge. I can do that. So drag and drop makes sense to me. Yeah, that's good. Good. <laughs> so if you've got a problem though, okay. if that is too much for you, mm-hmm. Which it might be. Okay. Uh, Squarespace has a 24-7 tech support on chat or email. Get a hold of them. They will help you out. They'll hold your hand. I need it sometimes. Sometimes though. you do. Yeah. Well, plans start at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name, which is pretty nice, I think, mm. if you sign up for a year. There's no credit card required. And don't forget, you get 10% off if you use offer code HPL. Don't waste time. Squarespace.com. Our reader once again this week, Joe Scalora. Oh, whoa, he's back in? He's back in. He laid it down for us on Dracula's guest last week, so we thought, let's bridge the gap between Marches for Dracula's and now. We haven't decided what we're calling this month. No, <laughs> people gave lots of suggestions. Um, one of them that came up a bunch was Sarcopha April. <laughs> I don't get it. Am I saying it wrong? I Well, I don't think there's a right way to say it. Sarcopha April? That's well, I saw that one. Yeah, and... Um, My month. Which almost works. Mm-hmm. Somebody sa- said, uh, Mo Mummy, Mo Mummy, Mo Mummy. <laughs> which I like a lot. Which is pretty good. Yeah. Mummy Dearest Month, is somebody threw out there. Now, some people pointed out maybe we picked the wrong month. Mummy yeah. would have been the more obvious choice. That, that would have probably been a better idea. Yeah. yeah. Or September would have been uh, good as well. <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Now, a few people. folks suggested April Hotep, which is good, but it was Graham Eberhart, our buddy, who suggested. Oh, yeah. Imhotapril. Imhotapril? <laughs> which is by far the most awkward of all of these names and for some reason has quickly become my favorite because of that, I think. <laughs> Imhotapril. Imhotapril. But also, uh, Steve Molman has been, or Molman has been making posters for us throughout Monster Party 2014. Oh, right, he did yeah. A cool Dracula one and a, a cool werewolf one, and he just posted another one for and he called it mummy madness month that's pretty good actually that's pretty good and since steve has been creating these dynamite posters for us i say let's go for mummy madness month it's mummy madness but i'm gonna do it uh varney the vampire style so it'll be mummy madness month you know how varney was like varney the vampire or the feast of blood right i'm saying mummy madness month or imhotapril 
Imhotep. <laughs> That's a reference to Imhotep, which is the name yes. of the mummy from the Boris Karloff film, and then right. also the um, the remake Remakes. from '99. Yeah, talking about Dracula's guest, <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to bring up a few things. We were speculating on a lot of what was going on in the story. Yeah, John Ripian thinks that it was actually Dracula, the thin man that was walking down the street. Yes, there's some people who said. The protagonist wasn't Harker, it was Renfield. On both of those things, we had uh, certainly evidence to suggest that our protagonist was Harker, given that references were made to Harker's throat being yes. uh, licked and all that stuff later yes. in the book that were removed. So I'm pretty sure that we were right on that. But I do think that some folks confound these two characters often because of the films. Often they send Renfield off to go visit Dracula, and then he comes back crazy. Now, I thought at some point, didn't Renfield... Before Harker went out there, didn't he go visit Dracula? Well, I haven't read the book in a long time, so somebody could textually find that. I thought that he was just all <laughs> no, I'm serious. I thought that he was just already in the asylum crazy. Oh, I got the impression that he worked for the same firm that Harker worked for. I could just be making this up. He worked for the same firm that Harker worked for, mm -hmm. and he went nuts and was institutionalized. And you find out he went nuts because he was dealing with Dracula. That could very well be. I don't remember, but my I I, I know that because in say like the you know, Dwight Fry as Renfield, they sent him off to see Dracula in the old Bela Lugosi movie. And so People who haven't read the book go, yeah, that's what Renfield does. He goes and he sees him and he comes back crazy. A lot of movies switch those characters out. Right. So, you know, I just want to make sure that it's actually in the book Dracula. Do they say that he's been out there to see Dracula? I thought he was just an inmate of Seward's Asylum. But, I, yeah, you know, there might be some suggestion in the book that I just don't remember because it's been a long time. Right. We're right that it's Harker anyway. <laughs> it is Harker, <laughs> so for sure. Now, that I stand by. Now, on the other thing, I'm not sure. I think uh, John might be right in his idea about it because I was like, well, why would he pretend? But in the beginning of Dracula, he pretends to be a coachman. He does. Dracula doesn't have any servants. and he So he doesn't have any servants. He plays the part of all of his servants. So, yeah, what's your objection to that? Well, it makes sense to me that he would do that in the vicinity of his castle. It doesn't necessarily make sense to me that he would travel to Germany just to be around to make sure that the guy's going to meet him safely at his home. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Why would he be there? Because the whole reason he's having Harker come out is because he wants to arrange travel and he wants to, well, he wants to buy the property in London that he's going to move into. But it just seems odd to me that he would run out to Munich Make sure this guy's okay, then run back ahead of him. Right. And be home just seems like a lot of busy work. It does, but I can also argue that he goes down in a as a coachman to pick him up and mm -hmm. then bring him up. And then, you know, that also seems like some busy work that he wouldn't necessarily have to do himself either. Uh, but he has to do it because he doesn't have any other choice. So if he yeah. knew that there was an opposing vampire that was living around Munich mm -hmm. that might be trying to mess with his game then he would have to, I mean, for him, it would be an easy trip. He'd have to bring his coffin with his earth that he has because yeah. he needs to sleep on his earth. But he would do that, especially if he thought that there was going to be a confrontation with this vampire lady, which there was. So I, I think that makes sense. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I think just because he, he, the reason that he plays his own servant is because he has to do that to keep up uh, appearances for Harker. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean he doesn't have correspondence or people all over the world that he's networked with. I mean, clearly he's set up with this law firm. He doesn't have servants at his place, but he might have this guy that looks out for things for him elsewhere. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. It seemed odd to me that Dracula would cruise out there. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. We'll have to agree to disagree on this one, Chad. Also, if he was out there, why didn't he jump into the graveyard and have a cool vampire fight with the Countess? Well, he didn't need to. He's called down a bolt of lightning and zapped her. Yeah, but he had to know I was going to read this. <laughs> <laughs> and I would much prefer to see a count on yeah. Countess action in a graveyard. That would be pretty hot. Yeah. All right. Well, enough Draculas. <laughs> Let's get into some Poe. We haven't dipped into mm -hmm. Poe. We haven't gone swimming in the Poe Lake for a while. Right. And uh, this one, well, 
it's not your normal, typical Poe story. This is not the type of thing you're thinking of when you think of Poe, or at mm-hmm. least I don't. And is this actually in supernatural <laughs> horror literature? Because I started going through it, and I couldn't find it. Well, I'll, I'll admit something to you, which is that when I was looking for stories, I was looking through the index of the annotated supernatural horror literature that that Uh, Joshi put together and saw this in here, made the wrong assumption that he talks about it in there. The reason that it was referenced in the annotated one is because Joshi references this story in a note that he has. There's something, uh, there's a whole Poe chapter in the book. Yeah. In that chapter, one of the things Lovecraft has to say is this. Poet and critic by nature and supreme attainment, logician and philosopher by taste and mannerism, Poe was by no means immune from defects and affectations. His pretense to profound and obscure scholarship, his blundering ventures in stilted and labored pseudo-humor, and his often vitriolic outbursts of critical prejudice must all be recognized and forgiven. And I do know, especially if you go see uh, that Nevermore show, his vitriolic outbursts of critical prejudice are pretty extreme. Yeah, they are indeed. Uh, But the (laughs) reference here was... um, his blundering ventures in stilted and labored pseudo-humor. Wow. And the note that Joshi had put in here was, well, there are some of his stories that are actually pretty funny, and Some Words of the Mummy is one of them. So that's the reason that that note was there and why I pulled right. out the story. Also, Lovecraft had written back in 1921 in his essay, The Defense Remains Open, talking about why he doesn't use humor in his weird fiction. Mm-hmm. He writes, I have the sanction of the best models. Poe's intense tales are wholly humorless. Lovecraft doesn't think that humor has a place in weird fiction. Boy, that's an interesting thought. I don't know. Do you think that humor has a place in weird fiction? Well, I think humor has a place everywhere because I think that human beings are inherently funny. You know, we're, we're kind of ridiculous creatures. Sure. And I think that in everyday life, there's always some some kind of humor I mean, going on. So yeah, I think it has a place everywhere. Do you think that the levity that humor provides kind of detracts away from the mood that is created by weird fiction or hopefully attained by weird fiction? I think that's a good point to make and that that's possible. I mean, certainly it relieves tension. And if you're working in a style that requires the slow building of tension, then the use of humor might be a mistake. But certainly, I know Lovecraft talks about you want to create a world that seems very real and then slowly venture out of it. Mm -hmm. And to me, humor applies to that naturally and you know Lovecraft's wrong he does use humor in his stories that are weird sometimes it usually happens near the beginning but in certain ways that he describes things they might not be jokes but they're wry sure you know he's he's making comments that are somewhat amusing but in general I guess he does have a point I mean you're not going to read you know the things that Poe is most famous for the fall of the house of usher I don't think there's anything funny in that well incest is kind of funny (laughs) not really but you know this story isn't going to really help us make that case because this isn't a weird fiction I wouldn't say no it's it's a satire and it kind of missed the mark for me I I get why it's funny and and what he was saying but the way it was written for me it was really hard to read I had trouble following what was going on what they were talking about like the the end of it well I'm jumping ahead yeah why don't we just let's let's roll through it we can we can do it pretty quickly what was the beginning there what do we it begins with the narrator at home and he complains he's not feeling well because he went to a symposium the night before and he ate this light dinner which Mm. was four pounds of Welsh rabbit (laughs) and five (laughs) bottles of brown stout I'm getting the sense that this is probably a large man yeah, possibly. And also that this is going to be a funny story. I thought it Yeah, it was an amusing couple first paragraphs. It because was. Like, it was. I've got to have a light and frugal meal. Now, Welsh rabbit, it's just cheese on bread, right? Well, yeah. There's a bunch of different ways to make it, but yeah. Well, I've had it quite a few times and it, it generally makes you feel like bedtime is the right option after you're done with it. I can't imagine eating that much of it and having all that much to drink. Although I think the point of that 
is that he's had this really kind of toxic meal before he's gone to bed. I think the rest of the story is a dream. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that he ate a bunch of screwed up stuff and then he went to sleep because everything happens in the course of uh, uh, sleepy time. You know, <laughs> he goes to bed right. and then he has to go over to the doctors after midnight and then they don't even open the mummy up until two in the morning and then they're talking until four in the morning. All this happens over the normal period of time that he probably right. goes to sleep. Well, so anyway, you're jumping ahead a little bit here. Yeah, okay. He has a wife. He's married. He falls asleep. He doesn't like his wife very much, by the way, I get right away. He does not like his wife very much. Because he says, she's saying I ate five pounds of Welsh rarebit, but she's confusing the number because I had five drinks. You idiot. <laughs> so he goes to sleep he gets woken by the doorbell and there's knocking at the door somebody's being very impatient mm -hmm. then his wife comes in with a note and gives it to him and it's from his friend dr pananer now his wife isn't sleeping with him in the same room or do they have different rooms like why was she or did he make her go downstairs and answer the door <laughs> in the middle of the night i hope that's what it was <laughs> which go to see me is that much, is. much funnier than yeah. it's gonna make his poor wife go down there. <laughs> Uh, our narrator gets this invitation. He's super interested in it because Dr. Pananer has a mummy and he's going to unwrap it at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, he says, the, the museum has allowed me to take this mummy. You know the one I mean. Like, are they just walking around <laughs> looking at mummies going, ah, I really want to get that one undressed, you know? So, yeah, that's a good mummy. Yeah. <laughs> but that mummy is the best. You know the one I mean. Yeah, I've been yeah. checking. That mummy's banging, dude. I can't wait to get it, <laughs> get it unwrapped. <laughs> so... He gets on his clothes and he hurries on down there. I don't know why anybody would be unwrapping a mummy at 11 o'clock yeah. at night and why. I don't understand what happened. <laughs> that The series of events that led up to somebody going, okay, you can un unwrap the mummy. <laughs> oh, can I take it right now? <laughs> but it's 5 o'clock in the evening. Are you sure you don't want to just do it tomorrow? Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, no. I need to take it now. But oh, I want to get some friends together. You know what? And I'm really hungry. So I'm going to go get some dinner. Just leave the mummy at my house. Oh, I was supposed to meet up with Larry for drinks, too. Okay, so I'm going to so meet up with him, have drinks, and then I'm going to go back at around 11 o'clock, start dissecting this mummy. But you know what? You laugh, but actually, I think this kind of thing did happen. What? Huh? I did a little bit of reading about this because I also thought it was odd. And in the 19th century, it wasn't uncommon for the, uh, you know, the sort of educated nobleman to have these sorts of symposia or examinations in a party atmosphere oh so they would get a bunch of people together they'd do it at night and actually mummies in particular and we could talk about this a little more but it was a big uh -huh. craze at this time yes in victorian england the the whole egyptology thing and a lot of noblemen would purchase mummies for this express purpose and they would take them to their home and open them up at a party so everybody could wow. check it out all at once and of course the mummy would get exposed to the air and immediately disintegrate. It was terrible. We lost a lot of really important relics because of these jerks having these kind of parties. Uh, rich people. Look, it was a positive thing, the Egyptian craze, because mm -hmm. before that, people were grinding up mummies. Oh, right. Mummy powder. <laughs> and, and drinking them because they thought it would uh, have all kinds of <laughs> medical benefits for them. You know, yummy yeah. for their, what did you call it? Mummy for the tummy? Mummy for the tummy. Yep. <laughs> so when he gets to Pananer's place, there's a mm -hmm. bunch, of, there's a few guys there already. Mr. Gideon, who's an Egyptian scholar, and this guy Buckingham. I quickly figured out that it doesn't really matter who these guys are because they're just a bunch of buffoons, you know? Yes. And the important thing is really that none of them are doctors no. except Pananer. He's the one, he's the only physician, but everybody else, or doctor of who knows what, but everybody else are just kind of his buddies. So how they're qualified to be hanging out and messing with this mother. You well, know. they all seem to know a lot about Egypt and can speak Egyptian. Yeah, two of these guys can actually speak ancient Egyptian, which is also mind-boggling to me. Yeah. And it suggests to me that this is a dream. One name that I really liked, though, is the name of the captain who found this mummy. 
Sabertash? Yeah, Captain Arthur Sabertash. I want to find out all about this guy because he went up in the Libyan mountains to find this thing, right? Found him in the Libyan mountains, and this tomb was far from all the other tombs of of Egypt that you mm-hmm. that we all know about and that are very popular and, and such. This sarcophagus, and it's unmolested, it has been opened, has been touched. It's just been on display mm-hmm. until now. It's laid out on the din- the dining room table right now. Yeah. Right? yeah. So they're just sort of having drinks and hanging out and mm. opening up this case. The box opens and there's another one inside. And on that box, they find out the name of this guy who is Alamistakio. <laughs> Alamistakio, yeah. Alamistakio? Is that how it's? I guess. I mean, it's it's a, it's supposed to be a funny sounding name, I think. Probably making some reference to the fact that these gentlemen that are opening up are, are mistaken about everything that they have that they think about ancient yeah. Egypt. So it's a, a joke about that. But to me, it just sounds like a magician's name. There's another case within uh, and then a third until yeah. finally they get to the body. Right. Instead of finding a body that's wrapped up in bandages, as they would think a mummy would be, this one is placed in a papyrus sheath. Mm-hmm. and then covered with plaster, which is decorated with painting and gold gilt. They removed the body from that, and it's in really good condition, except it doesn't seem to be embalmed in a normal fashion. Its uh, skin is kind of red, and there are no incision marks. They would take out all the innards and take out their brains and, mm-hmm. and do all that stuff. So they're going, hmm, this is really different. Yeah, don't they pull your brains out through your nose? Through your nose, yeah. And then normally there's a little incision, small one, but that's they pull all of your guts out of one place and... Yeah. So, so something's different here. This is not a typical mummification. And I think as Poe lays out these different processes for the mummy, I mean, he, he clearly has an understanding of the mummification process. I think that probably actually would have been pretty good general public knowledge because of the Egyptian craze that was mm. going on at the time. I always think of it as happening after the 20s because of the discovery of Tutankhamun. But no, it happened much, much earlier. I was reading about that, and I think a lot of that had to do with Napoleon, actually who, uh, at the end of the 18th century, he'd taken a scientific expedition to Egypt, but their findings were published over time. So in the whole part of the early 1800s, new books were coming out constantly saying, we found this, we found this, we found this, you know, so there was constant sort of fuel coming into the public interest in this. You know, there was a really good documentary on, I think it was a couple of years ago here in the UK, and it was about mummification and how Mm -hmm. they did it. And there was this guy who had terminal cancer and he was volunteering his body to to be mummified, to go through the process, because they weren't exactly sure how a lot of these things were done, and they had theories, but they needed to test them. Oh, wow. And to test them, they needed somebody that was fresh, you know, somebody that would consent to it. What was really weird about the documentary is that they, the guy who was being mummified was narrating over his own mummification and talking about... Oh, weird. Because he knew what exactly was going to happen, and so there's interviews with him and his wife, and how he was kind of like, hey, you know, this is a cool thing, and I get to be mummified when I die. And But it was really interesting because there's just, it's such a complicated procedure to mummify mm-hmm. somebody and all the science that's behind what they do to preserve those bodies and how they came, how the ancient Egyptians had come up with this method. It's it's a very good documentary. I recommend finding it. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's something like I Married a Mummy or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Well, if you can find it, see if you can put it in the show I notes. I will put it in the show notes, yeah. Because that's, what you're saying is kind of what the point of the story is. It's pretty amazing the stuff that they came up with in ancient times. Yeah. Well, now they make a pretty interesting choice. It's it's getting late. It's past two o'clock. They decide, you know, maybe we should knock this off for now. Tomorrow night we'll do the initial mm-hmm. examination of this thing now that we've got it open. But then someone says, well, what if we, uh, what if we ran some electric current through it? <laughs> About one-tenth in earnest and nine-tenths in jest, but pretty quickly they all jump around. They're like little kids. So I'm reading this book called Electrified Sheep, and mm-hmm. it's by the same guy that did Hippo Eats Dwarf. 
and Elephants on Acid, which is okay. all about bizarre experiments. And they talk about how the electricity craze kind of got started, where people would have these the glass tubes and they would be able to provide shocks. And they would shock small animals and to kill them to find out how powerful the shock was. That, that was their only system of, because of, basically it was a party trick to just be able to shock people. And people were like, wow, that's really neat. There was this one trick where it would be a woman who would stand on a a, a platform that was made of wax so it wouldn't conduct electricity. And yeah. then guys would come up and kiss her and then they would get shocked. And I was like, well, this, this is a fun party thing to do, I guess. People like to make things more and more powerful. They mm-hmm. they kept upping the the power of this and people would start getting knocked down and, and stuff. <laughs> and they got really, really hurt. What happened was they would measure it by how the, the power would be, oh, it's Finch level because Finch level would mean that it's enough juice to kill a to Finch. To kill a Finch. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, well, it's goose level because now it's powerful enough to kill a goose. And it would get up to the point where wow. what happened when they finally started being able to figure out how to store the energy and power it up, that's where the word battery comes from because it would be like a battery of cannon fire that would knock you down. That's where the, oh. the origin of a battery. Right at this time, I mean, we were, I mean, this is a little bit later. I mean, yeah. it was the late 1700s where the electric craze kind of really started happening and then moved on to, to now where they've mm-hmm. definitely had uh, batteries already by that point. Interesting. Pretty cool. And I really recommend that book. So they get their battery and they've got their wires and then they start, what do they do? They First they shoot him in the nose or something? Or? No, no, they shoot him on the temples okay. and, he, and his eyes close. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, whoa, that's crazy. Everybody yeah. freaks out. Buckingham climbs under a table. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they, they all hide. They totally turn into stooges, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they see nothing much else has happened, so they come they go, back to... They come back and go, okay, let's try something else. And so they put a little incision on his ankle, and mm-hmm. they're going to... They shock his leg. And when they, <laughs> they, shock, they shock his leg, he kicks... He kicks Dr. Panader so hard that he knocks him out the window. <laughs> yeah. He, straining the limb with inconceivable force bestowed a kick upon him, which had the effect of discharging that gentleman like an arrow from a catapult through a window into the street below. Okay, that was funny, right? That was funny. That When that happened in the story, yeah. I laughed. It surprised me. Speaking of stooges, I mean, that was just something out of nowhere. He yeah. Just, and then they run down to say to get the mangled remains of the victim, but he's already running back up. Yeah, because he's really excited about it. Can you believe I just got booted in the chest by that mummy? It's it's all pretty zany at this point in the story. And actually, this I love. I think the zany stuff is, it's when yeah. they get into their conversation that I get pretty confused. The last bit they do, they decide they're going to electrocute part of his nose so mm-hmm. that they can kind of maybe activate his brain in some way. Sure. They apply it to his nose, and this causes the mummy to open its eyes and blink rapidly for a minute and then it sneezes and sits up it shakes its fist at Dr. Pananer and then it busts out in ancient Egyptian this I must say gentlemen that I am as much surprised as I am mortified at your behavior of Dr. Pananer nothing better was to be expected he is a poor little fat fool who knows no better I pity and forgive him but you Mr. Glidden And you, Silk, who have traveled and resided in Egypt until one might imagine you to the manner born, you, I say, who have been so much among us that you speak Egyptian fully as well, I think, as you write your mother tongue, you, whom I have always been led to regard as the firm friend of the mummies, I really did anticipate more gentlemanly conduct from you. What am I to think of your standing quietly by and seeing me thus unhandsomely used? What am I to suppose by your permitting Tom, Dick, and Harry to strip me of my coffins and my clothes in this wretchedly cold climate? 
In what light to come to the point am I to regard your aiding and abetting that miserable little villain, Dr. Poniner, in pulling me by the nose? What? So the mummy sits up and talks, an Egyptian, and this is the part that they don't, they don't ever really explain. He knows all of these guys and what, who they are and what they do and what yeah. they're about. So how does he know that stuff? I don't know. He knows they're friends to the mummies. Yeah. So, huh? And is there an ancient Egyptian equivalent to Tom, Dick, and Harry? I, I guess so. <laughs> so it's pretty strange. I don't really understand. They all freak out for a bit. So since these guys know Egyptian, they can speak with the mummy quite clearly. Yeah. Sometimes they're unable to understand each other. And so they'll have to resort to making drawings or they illustrate this by they say they couldn't get him to understand the word politics. <laughs> so they drew a picture of a guy making a speech. It says he's a... A little carbuncle-nosed gentleman out at elbows, standing on a stump with his left leg drawn back, right arm thrown forward. Basically some caricature of a politician they have to write. Yeah. And that's what, oh, the mummy gets that. Yeah, we had those two. The mummy's still ticked about them cutting him up. Yeah. And they say, well, we were doing it for science. We were trying to figure out what happened to you and, and what this mummification process was and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're sorry. We didn't know that you were still alive. Yeah. And the mummy goes, oh, well, if you're doing it for science, that's okay. <laughs> so he gets up off the table and he shakes their hands. Yeah. And then they get him some clothes. Oh, well, first they, they first they fix up his incisions and then they get him some clothes and they go into a lot of description. A pair of whiskers? A pair of whiskers. He's got a fake mustache? An eyeglass? Yeah, they, they really dress him up to look modern. But of course, all of this stuff is way larger. It doesn't really fit him, so he looks even more comical. And then once he's dressed, they all go into the parlor and have cigars and wine. Yeah. Well, if you get a mummy up and running again, you want to have a conversation with him, see what's going on. <laughs> they find out that he wants to be called the Count because that's sort of his equivalent position to where he's from. Yeah. And they're like, so what's up with you and what happened and he goes oh well i'm 700 years old i don't i don't know if you guys know that and they're like well, you're actually way more than 700 years old like you were buried 5000 years ago <laughs> and he goes oh no you misunderstand me i when i was mummified i was 700 years old he kind of says oh well, i forget that you guys are behind on your calvinism i'm like what <laughs> What? How does the mummy know what Calvinism is? I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. You know, we did cover mummies once before, actually. We did uh -huh. the story The Mummy's Foot by Gautier. Yeah, oh yeah. And there was a lot of boasting in that story about, as well about the long life of the Egyptians. Yeah, well, I, I know biblically there's a lot of people that lived a long time. Like, mm -hmm. I think Noah supposedly lived hundreds of years. And, of course, Methuselah yeah. is like the longest lived guy in the Bible. So I think there's this idea that people of ancient times lived hundreds and hundreds of years. Just to cut to the chase, the thing is that the Count, he's part of, he says he's blood of the Scarabaeus, which is basically a rich family from yeah. Egypt. And their custom, most mummies get their brains taken out, they get the organs done, they're done for it. They're just preserved dead bodies. Whereas his family, the blood of the Scarabaeus, they, they do this differently. They actually mm -hmm. get embalmed a different way so that they can come back to life later if they should so desire. Yeah, and the, basically they get embalmed while they're, alive yes and that's kind of the, the creepy part that that's sort of the ex only explanation you're really going to get out of this and then the rest of this story which it's it goes on for a bit but they kind of just talk about their culture versus his culture and mm -hmm. their scientific advances versus ancient egyptians scientific advances it goes on for a long time and i found this not very interesting well the point of it i think is that these gentlemen are so impressed by the accomplishments of their culture in the present day. Yes. They don't really realize that most of this was invented by the ancients. Yes. Or at least had a, you know, some kind of 
equivalent thing. And it starts with him saying, I'm of the blood of the Scarabaeus. And, and Mr. Glidden says, I thought that was one of the Egyptian gods. And the mummy says, what? The Egyptian, what? And this is where he clears it up for him. No, 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 no. We only have one God. There's only one God. And all of these gods, what you think are gods, are just aspects of the same one. And I think that's where the story's conceit begins. We have monotheism as well. Yeah. It's not just something you guys invented. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's funny. And then he continues to go on. They have this conversation that you were talking about. But I, real quick, the important thing about why they mummify themselves this way is basically because even his family, they're, they're historians. And so after they live like 500 years, they'll go ahead and they'll write the history that they know at that point. Yeah. Get embalmed. A few hundred years later, when they get reanimated, they'll go back and see, oh, look at all the crap that people have done to this. Resuming existence at the expiration of this time, he'd invariably find his great work converted into a species of haphazard notebook. Yeah. Uh, a literary arena for conflicting guesses, riddles, and personal squabbles. And so he'll go and correct his own history after 300 years of people tearing it apart. Right. And that's that process of rescription and personal rectification is what they call it. And that's basically why the mummies do this. Which is kind of a neat idea in a, in a very kind of sci-fi sort of way. They're jumping through time just trying to make sure that we remember things right. And that's that's pretty interesting. But then, like I said, it kind of goes into this whole, you know, Anything you can do, I can do better sort of Yeah, so let's just skip through real quick. One of the things they say is that, uh, well, since you, you know, you're 5,000 years old, is there anything else you could tell us about creation? Because as you're probably aware, we've only been around for 10,000 or for 10 centuries. 10,000 years. And the mummy says, uh, we, I don't think anybody in my culture entertains so singular a fancy that the universe ever had a beginning at all. Their understanding is that the universe is infinite and in all directions, time as well. Yeah. So he's a little more sophisticated than these guys, actually. What else do they talk about? Phrenology? And yeah. Those things made me laugh. Phrenology, which I think is studying the bumps on people's heads. It is. Animal magnetism, which is more crap. Uh-huh. It's, All of it, this stuff he finds to be ridiculous. The kind of the zinger at the end of the story is, <laughs> they're like, okay, well, okay, so you have this stuff, but did you have lozenges in ancient Egypt? <laughs> and at that point, the mummy just sort of concedes. And goes, okay, yeah, you're right. You guys had lozenges. I'm I'm the loser. And at that point, our narrator gets his coat and leaves. It's all pretty silly. It is. The, there's an interesting other character that I didn't quite get. There's like a, a person who hadn't spoken yet. And every time our protagonist questions the mummy, he'll say, do you understand this? And then the guy will lean forward and go, dude, you, you should really go read your books before you ask him that question. <laughs> like the guy says, you know, you really should read your Ptolemy before you say something like that. Yeah, and then he's like... Ptolemy? Who's Ptolemy? And you're like, oh, my God, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> Which reveals that they're all actually idiots. Yeah. And they've been bullying this mummy who's very patient with them. And at the end, they say, well, you don't have breath mints. And he goes, no, we didn't have breath mints. And they go, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> so we're the ones that won. Yeah. And then here's the, here's the end. Upon getting home, I found it past four o'clock and went immediately to bed. It is now 10 a.m. I have been up since seven penning these memoranda for the benefit of my family and of mankind. The former I shall behold no more. My wife is a shrew. The truth is, I am heartily sick of this life and of the 19th century in general. I am convinced that everything is going wrong. Besides, I am anxious to know who will be president in 2045. As soon, therefore, as I shave and swallow a cup of coffee, I shall just step over to Poniner's and get embalmed for a couple of hundred years. So yeah, that's the end of the story. My wife is a shrew. Mummify me. That's how I'm going to get out of this one. <laughs> so this story was first published in the American Review, a Whig journal in April of 1845. Ah, yes. This, that's, so that's later for Poe, actually. I think he died just a couple of years after that. Yeah. So 
This would have been one of his later works. And also, the Ala Mistako was in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Really, I don't remember. Yeah, that. well, it was just in one of the uh, one of the backstories. They mentioned him. He's mentioned, and there's a drawing of him as well. If you go online and do a oh, image cool. search, you'll find you'll find uh, one of the pictures of him. We're running out of time. I thought we would get through this rather fast, but then we ended up getting off on some corollaries about Draculas and whatnot. <laughs> this is the kickoff for our uh, Mummy Madness Month, Imhotep April. We're going to be talking mummies all month. Next week, we're going to do a story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that is called Lot Number Two Forty Nine. Yeah. And this apparently concerns some mummies. I haven't read it yet, but I we have not covered Conan Doyle on the show yet. No, we haven't, surprisingly. But we've talked about him and his, his most famous creation, Sherlock Holmes, quite a bit. So we're going to talk mummy movies. We'll talk why people are fascinated with Egyptology in our subsequent episodes. If you want to listen to those, please subscribe. It's very cheap. It's $2.22 a month. Yep. Uh, we'll have three more episodes on mummy action this month, so you don't want to miss out on those. Now, this free episode that we have is, again, sponsored by Squarespace.com. Squarespace, for all of your web creation needs, uh, it's simple. They have beautiful templates you can start with, great design, drag and drop, easy for uh, Luddites like me to use, and they have 24-7 tech support. Plans start at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Remember, if you're going to sign up, you can get 10% off if you use offer code HPL. That's HPL. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, HPL. Please use it. Don't waste time. Get on it. Squarespace.com. Thanks again to our reader, Joe Sklora, for doing a bang-up job. He rocks. We are going to be back again next week with more mummy action. And with that, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcast.com.